Some of you may have read my blog this week and seen that we were going to hear something about Isaiah 58 and the idea of what happens when a dream is deferred, but the Holy Spirit interceded besides too deep for words. And so I want to share with you a different text this week, but first let us pray together. God of love, God of justice, may you give us visions, your kind of vision, your kind of dream of how you would have us be in this world, how you would have us dream along with you and act on your behalf. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the 1950s, after Martin Luther King Jr. received his doctorate at Boston University, he went back to the South where he was called to serve as pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Sometimes we forget that the great orator was once a local church pastor. And in fact, he came there with some contradiction because his predecessor, Vernon Johns, had a slightly eccentric approach to ministry and was a great political activist. And there was some ambivalence about getting another political pastor in their pulpit. And yet the winds of the civil rights movement would soon sweep Dr. King away from that church in the late 50s and on to the greater movement, which we know him for. But this week, I was reading through some of his sermons from that era, when he was a pastor. And I wanted to share one with you. There were several I would have liked to have shared with you, mainly because we would never hear it spoken aloud. And I won't attempt his cadence or his accent here today, but you will hear it in his words. You may remember four years ago on this Sunday, I wrote, I shared with you a letter that I wrote imagining what Dr. King would say to us today. I have that letter in mind four years later to share with you a letter that Dr. King imagined the Apostle Paul would write to his parishioners in 1956. He started it by saying, I'd like to share with you this imaginary letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul, the postmark reveals that it comes from the city of Ephesus. After opening the letter, I discovered that it was written in Greek rather than English. At the top of the first page was this request, please read to your congregation as soon as possible and then pass on to other churches. And for several weeks, I've worked assiduously with the translation. At times, it's been difficult, but now I think I have deciphered its true meaning. May I hasten to say that if in presenting this letter the contents sound strangely Kingian instead of Paulinian, attribute it to my lack of complete objectivity rather than Paul's lack of clarity. And I should add that I've edited it slightly for 2018. It is miraculous indeed that the Apostle Paul should be writing a letter to you and to me nearly 1,900 years after that letter, his last letter appeared in the New Testament. How is this possible is something of an enigma wrapped in a mystery. The important thing, however, is that I can imagine the Apostle Paul writing a letter to American Christians in 1956 A.D., just as much as in 2018 C.E. And here is the letter as it stands before you. I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to you who are in America... Grace be unto you and peace from God, our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
For many years I have longed to be able to come and see you. I have heard so much of you and of what you are doing. I've heard of the fascinating and astounding advances that you have made in the scientific realm. I have heard of your dashing subways and flashing airplanes. Through your scientific genius, you have been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. You've been able to carve highways through the stratosphere. So in your world, you have made it possible to eat breakfast in New York City and have dinner in Paris. I have also heard of your skyscraping buildings with their prodigious towers steeping heavenward. I've heard of your great medical advances, which have resulted in the curing of many dread plagues and diseases, and thereby prolonged your lives and made for greater security and physical well-being. And all of that is marvelous. You can do many things in your day that I could not do in the Greco-Roman world of my day. In your age, you can travel distances in one day that took me three months to travel. And that is wonderful. You've made tremendous strides in the area of scientific and technological development. But America, as I look at you from afar, I wonder whether your spiritual and moral progress has been commensurate with your scientific progress. It seems to me that your moral progress lags behind your scientific progress. Your poet, Henry David Thoreau, used to talk about improved means to an unimproved end, and how often this is true. You've allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. You've allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You have allowed your civilization to outdistance your culture. And through your scientific genius, you have made a world, made the world, a neighborhood. But through your spiritual and moral genius, you have failed to make it a brother and sisterhood. The nuclear bomb you have to fear today is not merely that deadly weapon which can be dropped from an airplane on the heads of millions of people. But that nuclear bomb which lies in the hearts of human beings capable of exploding in the most staggering hate and the most devastating selfishness. Therefore, I would urge you to keep your moral advances abreast with your scientific advances. I'm impelled to write you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to represent the ethical principles of Christianity amid a time that popularly disregards them. That is what I had to do. That is what every Christian has to do. But I understand that there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to human-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by some such principle as this. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. For so, so many of you, morality is merely group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the mores are accepted as the right ways. You have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking a sort of Gallup poll of the majority opinion. How many are giving their ultimate allegiance in this way? But American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippians Christians, 
Ye are a colony of heaven. This means that although you live in a colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. And you have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and in earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any human-made institution. The Christian owes their ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. You must never allow the transitory, evanescent demands of human-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the almighty and all-loving God. Now, I understand that you have an economic system in America known as capitalism. And through this economic system, you have been able to do wonders. You've become the richest nation in the world. And you've built up the greatest system of production that history has ever known. And all of this is marvelous. But Americans, there is a danger that you will misuse your capitalism. I still contend that money can be the root of all evil. It can cause one to live a life of gross materialism. And I'm afraid that many among you are more concerned about making a living rather than making a life. You are prone to judge the success of your profession by the index of your salary and the size of your wheelbase on your automobile rather than the quality of your service to humanity. And this misuse of capitalism can also lead to tragic exploitation. This has so often happened in your nation. They tell me that one-tenth of one percent of the population controls more than 40 percent of the wealth. And, oh, America, how often you have taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. If you are to be truly Christian nation, you must solve this problem. You're able to work within the framework of democracy to bring about a better distribution of wealth, and you can use your powerful economic resources to wipe poverty from the face of the earth. God never intended for one people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth, while others live in abject, deadening poverty. God intends for all of their children to have the basic necessities of life, and God has left in this universe enough to spare for that purpose. So I call upon you, Christians in America, to bridge the gulf between abject poverty and superfluous wealth. Now, I would that I could be with you in person so that I could say to you face-to-face -face what I'm forced to say to you in writing. Oh, how I long to share in your fellowship. But let me rush on to say something else about the church in America. I must remind you, as I've said to so many others, that the church is the body of Christ. So when the church is true to its nature, it knows neither division nor disunity. But I'm disturbed about what you're doing to the body of Christ. They tell me that in America you have within Protestantism more than 256 denominations. And I've heard 1,000 to 2,000 denominations. The tragedy is not so much that you have such a multiplicity of denominations, but that most of them are warring against each other with a claim to absolute truth. And this narrow sectarianism is destroying the unity of the body of Christ. You must come to see that God is neither Roman Catholic or Protestant, 
neither evangelical or progressive or mainline. God is neither Baptist nor Methodist nor United Church of Christ. God is neither Presbyterian nor an Episcopalian. God is bigger than all of our denominations. And if you are to be true witnesses for Christ, you must come to see that, America. And there's another thing that disturbs me to no end about the American church. You have a white church and you have a black church. And you've allowed this segregation to creep into the doors of the church. How can such division exist in the true body of Christ? You must face the tragic fact that when you stand at 11 on Sunday morning to sing All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name or Lift Every Voice and Sing, you stand in the most segregated hour of Christian America. They tell me that there's more integration in the entertaining world and other secular agencies than there is in the Christian church. How appalling that is. So, Americans, I must also urge you to get rid of every aspect of segregation, or perhaps Paul and Dr. King would say every aspect of racism, white supremacy, and mass incarceration. The broad universalism standing at the center of the gospel makes both the theory and practice of racism morally unjustifiable. White supremacy is a blatant denial of the unity which we all have in Christ. It substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship. In the case of mass incarceration, the incarcerator relegates the incarcerated to the status of a thing rather than elevate them to the status of a person. And the underlying philosophy of Christianity is diametrically opposed to the underlying philosophy of racism, white supremacy, and the practice of mass incarceration. And all the dialectics of the logicians cannot make them lie down together. I'd like to say just a word about your Supreme Court rendering a great decision just two or three years ago. Remember, this was in the 1950s. I'm happy to know that so many persons of goodwill have accepted this decision as a great moral victory, but I understand that there are some brothers among you who have risen up in open defiance. Their legislative halls ring loud with such words as tough on crime or three strikes and you're out. They have lost the true meaning of democracy and Christianity. So I would urge each of you to plead patiently with your brothers and tell them that this isn't the way. With understanding and goodwill, you are obligated to seek to change these attitudes. Let them know that in standing against prison reform, they are not only standing against the noble precepts of your democracy, but also against the eternal edicts of God, God's self. Yes, America, there is still the need for an Amos to cry out to the nation, let judgment roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. And I want to say a word to those of you who are struggling against this evil. Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no one pull you so low as to hate them. Always avoid violence, and if you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. So in your struggle for justice, 
Let the oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat or humiliate them or even pay them back for the injustices that they have heaped upon you. Let them know that you are merely seeking justice for them as well as for yourself. Let them know that the festering sore of racism debilitates the white person as well as the person of color. And with this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. Now, many people realize the urgency of seeking to eradicate the evil of racism. There will be many people of color who will devote their lives to the cause of freedom. There will be many white folks of goodwill and strong moral sensitivity who will dare to stand for justice. But honesty impels me to admit that such a stand will require willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you're condemned and persecuted for righteousness' sake. Whenever you take a stand for truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often you will be called an impractical idealist or a dangerous radical. Sometimes it means going to jail. And if this is the case, you must honorably give the grace the jail with your presence. It might even mean physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay for their children to save them from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing could be more Christian. I ask you not to worry about persecution, America. You're going to have that if you stand up for a great principle. And I can say this with some authority because my life was a continual round of persecutions. But the chief end of this life is not to be happy. The chief end of this life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The chief end of this life is to do the will of God, come what may. So I must bring my writing to a close now. Timothy is waiting to deliver this letter, and I must take leave for another church. But just before leaving, I must say to you, as I said to the church at Corinth, that I still believe that love is the most durable power of the world. Over the centuries, humans have sought to discover the highest good, and this has been the chief quest of ethical philosophy. This was one of the big questions of the Greek philosophers. The Epicurean and the Stoics sought to answer it. Plato and Aristotle sought to answer it. What is the summum bonum of life? Well, I think I have an answer, America. I think I've discovered the highest good. It is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos, As John says, God is love. The one who loves is a participant in the being of God. The one who hates does not know God. So, Americans, you may master the intricacies of the English language. You may possess all of the eloquence of articulate speech. You may attain great degrees of the highest education. But even if you speak with the tongues of human beings and angels and have not love, You are merely a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You may have the gift of prophecy. You may understand all mysteries. You may be able to break into the storehouse of nature and bring out many insights that others never dreamed were there. You may ascend to the heights of academic achievement so that you will have all knowledge. You may boast of your great institutions of learning and the boundless extent of your degrees. But all of this amounts to absolutely nothing devoid of love. And even more Americans, you may give your goods to feed the poor. You may give great gifts to charity. You may tower high in philanthropy. 
But if you do not love, that means nothing. You may even give your body to be burned and die the death of a martyr. You may spill blood as a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn, and thousands may praise you as history's supreme hero. But even so, if you have not love, your blood will have been spilled in vain. You must come to see that it is possible for a person to be self-centered in their self-denial and self-righteous in their self-sacrifice. They may be generous in order to feed their ego and pious in order to feed their pride. We humans have the tragic capacity to relegate this heightening virtue to a tragic vice. Without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. So the greatest of all virtues is love. It is here that we find the true meaning of the Christian faith. This is at the bottom of the meaning of the cross. The great event of that tree on that hill at Calvary signifies more than a meaningless drama that took place on the stage of history. It is a telescope through which we look out onto the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It's an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the most durable power in the world and that it is the bottom of the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. Only through achieving this love can you expect to matriculate into the university of eternal life. I must say goodbye now. I hope that this letter finds you strong in the faith. It is probable that I will not get to see you in America, but I will meet you in God's eternity. And so now, unto the one who is able to keep us from falling and lift us from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope, from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy, to God be power and authority forever and ever. Amen.